a listener production. I think it would be wonderful if all Australians felt so confident and so capable to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that they no longer need our services and they no longer need our support, that it becomes business as usual for them, that they no longer need reconciliation action plans, that we no longer need to educate the community, that the gap that exists between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians has been closed. I'm Margie Hartley, Executive Coach to Senior Leaders Around the Globe, and this is Fast Track. I remember the day in 2008 so clearly. I was in a corporate workplace running a leadership session and we all stopped to watch the apology, which finally and formally acknowledged the suffering caused by decades of mistreatment of First Nations people. A moment that my next guest has described as one of deep reflection, sorrow and pride to be Australian. My guest is Shelley Rays, a durable woman of far north Queensland and a respected Indigenous specialist, strategist and service provider. Shelley has been a pivotal leader in the reconciliation space for 30 years and as CEO of Arilla Indigenous Consulting, has been helping the Australian workforce to work in the Indigenous space with greater skill and confidence. She's currently a partner of KPMG Australia and a board member. Shelley was the inaugural co-chair of Reconciliation Australia, whose vision is for an Australia that recognises and respects the special place, culture, rights and contribution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and where good relationships between First Australians and other Australians become the foundation for local strength and success and the enhancement of our national wellbeing. Her vision is to create a culturally competent Australia, one workplace at a time. Shelley, thank you so much for joining us here on Fast Track. Hello, Margie. It's great to see you. Shelley, help us understand what it is you do and how that emerged as a career for you. Well, first of all, it emerged as a career for me through my cousin, Darren. Darren had started a business called Arilla, which means people in a Queensland Aboriginal language and established the business in Sydney and asked me to move from Melbourne to Sydney to help him establish it in Sydney. He died not long after, and so I have been running Arilla myself since then. And the reason why Arilla came to pass to begin with is very similar to the reasons I think Arilla still exists today, and that's because, generally speaking, I think there's a lot of good-natured, fantastic inspired and inspiring people out there that would like to make a contribution to reconciliation or the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space, but they just don't know how to. And they're so careful to do the right thing that quite often they do nothing. You know, there's a, I have a, a, a well-worn theory, Margie, and that's that when you start talking about things of an Indigenous nature, you start using the word First Nations or reconciliation, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and so on. You get good-natured, great people that all of a sudden start to walk on eggshells. They're nervous about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, making a mistake, sounding racist. And so in walking on eggshells, they end up being so afraid of doing the wrong thing that they do nothing at all. So that's really how 
this came to pass is my my fear, I guess, is that people who wanted to do good things and had the capacity in many other ways to do good things felt disabled to do it through that fear of walking on eggshells. So the way that I describe my work is that I remove the eggshells, giving people, uh, organisations and the leaders within them, the skills and confidence to be able to work in the space better and to lift their capability in order to really make a difference. Shelley, thank you. And you've been described as the central guide to the whole of Australia on how and why and what action we need to take for true reconciliation with First Nations people. How has that journey been for you? Well, first of all, I think that's a very generous way of describing me. There's lots of people that do amazing work in this area and many people that I have looked up to and learnt from over the years. That journey for me started in the early 90s under a Keating government, actually. That's how old I am, Margie. And uh, we, we were working with what was called the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. It was put together by the Commonwealth Government under a sunset clause that had a 10-year lifespan and it was designed to bring this word reconciliation to Australia for the first time. And I was part of that team and uh, I really feel as though it's the space that I really cut my teeth on, actually, learning from amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders and non-Indigenous leaders too. But the rest of the nation was learning too. I would describe those first 10 years of the reconcil- formal reconciliation movement in Australia to be one of raising awareness and learning. All Australians were learning more about First Nations peoples and cultures and traditions, but also the matters that really affect them for the very first time. And we ended the 10-year life of the council with a walk across the Sydney Harbour Bridge We called it the Walk for Reconciliation and it happened across major bridges across Australia, but the largest demonstration being in Sydney across the Sydney Harbour Bridge was said to be the largest collection of Australian leaders in one place since Federation in 1901, which is quite extraordinary, but designed to obviously symbolise the road that we walked, the the journey that we'd come uh, through across those first 10 years. The next 10 years I would also classify as a period of building the momentum and raising awareness, but just digging a little bit deeper. Um, Reconciliation Australia was born and, as you mentioned in your intro, I was its first co-chair. And we really started to think a bit more boldly about how do we turn goodwill into action. So I I would classify those 10 years as being one where we put more meat to the bone. And so that's the period where we did the Apology to the Stolen Generations. It's also the same period that we launched launched the idea of uh, a Reconciliation Action Plan or RAP, as it's better known, an incredibly popular framework for organisations to use to help guide their reconciliation efforts. And then the next 10 years, which represents 30, and that's the one we're living right now and now reflecting on, has been represented by uh, a deeper connection to First Nations peoples, a greater appreciation of who they are and how we can work together and a, and, a, and a commitment to want to improve the relationship between us. I'd also describe these last 10 years as being more complex. I think that lots of organisations have been thinking with greater complexity about the role that they can play, what is their leadership role internally and externally, And uh, there are some organisations who do that with a high degree of maturity. And so 
across the 30 years, I look at it as the maturity of the reconciliation movement and it's coming from basically thinking that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs is the job of government exclusively to now saying that there's a real people's movement that is very well established that realises that everyone has a role to play, not just the government. Shelley, thank you for taking us on that journey. It's a long one. You talked before about removing the eggshells. Can you help explain that a little bit more? Talk about that with me, about this idea of stepping on eggshells. What's your experience? Well, I think that um, most people are afraid. They they really want to do something. Let's just look, for example, the acknowledgement of country, which we hear a lot these days. And it's somebody's opportunity, albeit simple, but I think um, very important opportunity to let everybody know who's joined the meeting, the call, the conference, whatever it might be, that they stand on the traditional lands of others. And it's an acknowledgement that there's a long history of a connection between Indigenous peoples and that, that land, their role in being custodians, healing country, caring for country, and enabling us all to live and work and raise our children on those traditional lands. So it's a really important pause reflection and moment of thanks. There are so many people that have decided to take it upon themselves to do an acknowledgement of country and something that I've noticed is that they're all using the same phrases and the same words and I could repeat them to you right now. It's always the same words and I think the reason why people are using the exact same words over and over again is because they're afraid of saying the wrong words. You know, they're so stifled by this notion that I might make a mistake and I might be offending someone or it might be culturally inappropriate or I'm showing myself up up to be disrespectful or unconsciously biased that I'm going to use this standard set of lines to acknowledge country. So here you are, someone with all this great intention and goodwill, but finding it hard to find their own place and their own words in, in, that, um, in that moment. And so what I try to do is give people encouragement, give them facts, and therefore give them confidence to be able to be themselves and do what they wish to do, you know, li- really lift the, their performance and do what they already do so well, but do it in the Indigenous space too, so that they're not stifled by this notion that they're going to stuff it up. I love the idea of learning and growing and being safe to learn and grow and to fail and make mistakes. I think in corporate world, we might call it psychological safety. And it seems to me like you're bringing psychological safety to cultural competence. So you can build those bridges even more effectively for people. Your client list, Shelley, is really extensive and very impressive. What's happening in the boardrooms and executive teams that prompts that conversation where they call you, they pick up the phone and say, we need to talk to you? Uh, Well, look, I think that first I'll say internally there's a real sense that one needs, if you're in a leadership role, then one of the cool and new leadership skills to have is being able to work in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander area. Um, That's certainly a trend that I have seen over the last eight, ten years Um, that just continues to grow. And what those leaders generally do is think about two things. First of all, what can I do internally as a leader 
So within my sphere of influence, which is the, the teams and the workforce that I represent, what can I do to help influence their thinking, their attitudes and their notion of inclusiveness? And the second thing that those leaders end up doing is then thinking about what can I do externally? What's the external leadership look like for me? Where is my sphere of influence? Who are my networks? Who can I be talking to? A great example of that would be um, the Uluru Statement of the Heart that was released a few years ago and within it asking for a, a First Nations voice in Parliament in order to enable Indigenous Australians to contribute to the decisions on matters that affect them. There was a growing and still growing bank of leaders who had shown their support for the Uluru Statement of the Heart. So led by the CEOs generally or the chair people of each organisation and then naming that organisation to say that we stand behind Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and we stand behind the notion of having an Aboriginal voice in Parliament. And I think that, that that's been incredibly significant. The need for their voices internally and externally is no less important now as it has been over the last five, eight years, and I hope they continue to, to reach out and get support if they need it, but really to, to recognise that they have a role to play and be cognizant of that role. And that's what I aim to do for them. I was going to ask you, what is their future role of corporate Australia to to really help enact reconciliation and, and this action for First Nations people? Have you got some specifics? Is it just continued support or is there something else? There's a whole range of things that people can do. There's not one thing. I think anyone that runs a business knows that there's different strategies that will connect with different people. And so um, a reconciliation action plan is usually the framework that an organisation uses to be able to connect with different people and in different ways, from employment to procurement of Indigenous businesses, um, retention strategies, looking at internships with Indigenous students from university. There's a whole range of things that an organisation can be doing internally to help close the gap that exists between us. And, of course, I believe that one of the most important things is education, is to educate our workforce to understand the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander space better and to help dismantle the facts and the fallacies when it comes to this topic. And, as I said before, Dismantling the facts and the fallacies helps one gain confidence to be able to work in the space more effectively. And I, I do find that there is a lot of misinformation out there about First Nations peoples, whether it's about them themselves and what they're capable of and who they are and cultural differences and so on, or whether it's um, a misunderstanding about Australia's history, our shared history, and what that history looks like and how it has affected Indigenous peoples today. So I I think that education sits at the cornerstone, really, of what an organisation can do and its first, I would say, fundamental efforts to try and lift the performance of any individual or any team or any group to be able to work in the space effectively and really have an impact. 
Shelley, as the original co-chair of Reconciliation Australia, and that led to so much positive change across industry, community and government, which you described the journey earlier in our conversation, I know we have a long way to go, but how did you and do you invoke awareness across a whole community to take action? Uh, look, again, it's I would answer the same way as I did before, is that there's different strategies that connect with different people. For some people, it's storytelling is very popular and a very strong and rewarding way to learn something new and to learn something that might be potentially complex or sensitive for them. And so in my business at Arilla, we use a lot of storytelling to help people understand situations or circumstances or challenges that they may not have come across before. And the feedback that we have from our clients is that it's one of the most powerful things about the kind of services we provide is that that storytelling delivery. People who know me uh, and have heard me do my public speaking engagements will know that my family story is one that I'm happy to share in some circumstances, um, but also my own professional stories, which help people unpack, again, some tricky and very um, sensitive information in a way that it's easily understood and consumed. For other people, it's symbolism. So the apology of stolen generations or we've just come through a terrific and very successful NADOC celebration where I noticed uh, an insurmountable amount of flags throughout the cities. Every time you turned on the television, you would see that particular channel representing Indigenous motifs and Aboriginal stories and so on. So sometimes symbolism is a way to capture people's interest and spark their enthusiasm. I am of the view, as I said before, that education is the best way to spark enthusiasm and to really harness people's engagement. And if you can use a storytelling style through that education piece, all the better. So you're able to combine all these different kinds of ways to connect. I, I generally find, though, that if you take the time to explain to people what the facts are and remove some of the fallacies that are sitting in their mind, then you can open up a proper dialogue And with a proper, open and honest dialogue, you can then start to really listen to one another and work out how you repair the relationship between us and what acts, whether they be symbolism or whether it be real action orientation, might make a difference within the sphere that they are working within. Mm. Shelley, you have a vision of becoming redundant. Can you share what you hope that means? Happy to. And I'm surprised that you remember that, Margie. We talked about that a long time ago. Look, I think it would be wonderful if all Australians felt so confident and so capable to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that they no longer need our services and they no longer need our support, that it becomes business as usual for them. Another example would be that they no longer need reconciliation action plans, that we no longer need to educate the community, that that the gap that exists between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians has been closed and that we have created an environment where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people feel confident, feel capable, feel like they can contribute and have a real sense of hope for the future. And when all of those things happen, there'll be no reason for me to be around and that would be a delight to me. The only reason why I continue to do what I do 
is because I feel we have so much to do. And that's not to say that I can't acknowledge the path that we've all walked already and the fantastic advancements that there's been in the reconciliation space. But I I do think that we have some way to go and we do need to be a little bit braver about the relationship that exists between us and what that really looks like and what we can do as family members, as parents, as brothers and sisters and as work colleagues and as leaders in organisations to really shift that dial. Shelley Ray, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and every time we meet I learn more and I'm motivated to be part of the cultural competency of myself and others. So thank you so much for being with us on Fast Track today. Thanks, Margie. It's a pleasure. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley, producer Tina Matalov, audio production by Darcy Thompson, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Listener.